Headline Hollywood. Entertainment cronies and cinema elitists hand out awards for excellence in moving pictures. Sometimes the winners don't hold up to the test of time. So we're here in the future to tell them how they got it wrong. This is Switch the Envelope. Welcome to Switch the Envelope, a podcast that aims at rewriting Hollywood history. My name is Corey. And my name is Jeff. Jeff, tonight we are very excited to have a couple guests on. Anytime we have guests, it is a special day on Switch the Envelope. Yes, because it means we don't have to talk as much. Exactly. <laughs> Especially when we have two guests. And, and their opinions are better than ours. <laughs> That's always exciting. Corey, who do we have on the show? We have actors, producers, writers. They've done it all, Jeff. They are a dynamic duo. Wow. Renee Bordelon and television's Curtis Anderson. Switches, give them a warm hand. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Good to be here. Pleased to have you on. We're, we're very excited to have, to have you guys on. You, you've done just about everything in, in the sort of entertainment world, right? Like you've written, you've acted, you've produced... That like, is correct. I, I've, many had, hats. I've had over three and a half decades in, in the industry, most of them in front of the camera, and then, uh, and then producing, directing, and writing for the last, like, 15. I, I have also, yes, acted and been doing a lot of uh, stage stuff as well for the last, well, I guess probably most of my life, really, some form or another. All right. Well, maybe you can tell us about a part you played that was maybe the most exciting or gave you the most joy. Mm. Mm. Oh, see. Okay. So already I am baffled because normally what I'd have to do is go down with like the popular stuff. Um, and, and so normally I'd just start off and just be like, well, I was Gordy on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I was on that, 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 that Gilmore Girls show. Um, Pearl Harbor. But, uh, uh, but then there's there's the more fun stuff, which is is uh, shockingly popular, which is Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen's winning London, and uh, and uh, 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 and that's the fun stuff. I guess that's the fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, I kind of want to know like what was the most fun to do because like I know sometimes talking to actors they have um, you have to let people know what you did because it's your it's your resume. For us, Corey and I really want to know kind of like what was fun? Like what'd you do mm. that was that you still look back on and you think to yourself, man, that was fun. That was that was a fun time. Like what'd you guys do that was like that? Well, mine's cheating. Mine's mine's still Sabrina the Teenage Witch. That was just that was just a really good three years. And uh I still talk to those folks, you know? Like it's it was just a good group of people and and uh uh as much as I'd love to be able to tell like scandalous behind the scenes <laughs> tales. Um, I think I was probably the most scandalous to come out of the cast in the, in the end. So, you know, like <laughs> it, it, it ended up being just a, just a really good time and, and we could all still see each other and be happy to see each other. And, and so, so yeah, that, that's, that's probably that, but Nene, what you got? Um, well, I mean, a lot of what I did was more commercials and videos and very small films. Um, I think my favorite stuff that I've done film-wise has been um, the stuff for the um, uh, Fun Size Horror mm. and, um, and the 48-Hour Film Festival, to be honest. But yeah, there was a Fun Size Horror 
we did a bunch of different short horror films with different producers, writers, directors, um, just a lot of great projects. And I got to be in a few of those and that was really fun. Like, including one that Curtis and I did. Yeah. Like, like a together. An- anthology series of, of horror. <clears throat> it, it, it was an anthology series that was originally released exclusively online on mm-hmm. several different horror websites like dread central and oh. Fangoria. Um, and then, um, a group of them were collected together into an anthology series that played on Hulu for two or three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty good, it was a pretty good, uh, it was a pretty good, pretty good group of people. That first year especially was, was my personal favorite. Uh, I, I imagine horror in general is uh, a fun genre to sort of play in, uh, from, from an actor standpoint, right? Like there's, um, like you can kind of over exaggerate, you know, uh, extremes in, you know, it's cause you're scared out of your mind or you're <laughs> maniacally evil or, you know, there's lots of blood and practical effects and you're running around and like, it, it feels like, it feels like it'd be a blast. It me. would be, it would be a lot of fun. It's like for me, a, a person who really like my kick is, is the behind the scenes making of movie magic stuff right mm. so the blood packs the fake you know retractable knives the props the all that kind of stuff i feel like on a horror set that is just ramped up to a, to 11 and i would be like a kid in a playground like oh look at all this cool stuff we get to cory would be with. fired because they'd be like dude get off the get out yeah. get out of the prop room <laughs> <laughs> he'd be like you're an actor go act <laughs> right yeah i don't want to stand on my mark i want to talk to the prop guy <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I think just to kind of reinforce your belief, yes, horror movies are a lot of fun to do. They're a lot of fun to do. Um, uh, I've performed in several. I've produced a couple, and um, you know they're a mess. They're a mess to clean yes. up, but they are they are definitely they are definitely a lot of fun. A lot yeah. of fun. <laughs> yeah, they're they're long shower uh, after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After they they wrap uh, to get all the fake blood and corn syrup and shit out of your, <laughs> out of your Renee, hair. Stuff, how I'm long sure. did it take to get your prosthetics and everything off when we did Bloody Mary? Um, not too long for that one. Mm. It took me. It took me longer. The stuff that we did, uh, the the movie with Tara, the little film. Oh, the that's film right. With Tara. Yeah. That one, I had like really. I was like a cult ghosty person and like they put stuff in my hair and then we had this big makeup and so that stuff took a lot to wash out because it was kind of just a lot in general yeah but, she was um, covered in like a black slime that oh, came fun. out of her eyes and her nose and it was in her hair and i was yeah it was gross do you guys think that horror, um, horror films are the only ones actually doing like real makeup and real stuff anymore and not doing cg yet or like cg stuff like period pieces sometimes. I mean, they, they put a whole bunch of uh, of prosthetics on Gary Oldman for that. Um, but I kind of feel like horror in general is just like doing like a lot of the gritty like. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, That's what I'm saying. Like, it, it feels like all the movie magic just ramped up to 11 on a horror film. Like you know, practical it, effect magic. It kind of depends because CG has gotten so cheap and so easy mm-hmm. to do. Like, I'm sitting here on my MacBook Pro to talk to you right now, right? And I've got After Effects on this machine. I can render out 4K After Effects, Blood Effects, and Monster Effects with plugins now. Mm. And and this is on this is on a very simple computer. This is on you know this is this is 
a, a mid-2012 model, and I can do movie quality effects in Adobe. So a lot of low-budget horror films have now gone the technology route because it's cheaper than mixing stuff together. Now, a lot of your purists are still going to want to be able to put everything together. They still want to do the prosthetics. They want to do the, the practical blood. And I think I, I personally am a big fan of that, but I'm also of that generation that is still like the original thing is kind of the benchmark that we always want to be aiming for when we look for what kind of practical effects we're going to be doing for horror. Sure. Um, and there but, is only Ro one Rob Zombie, you know, he's going to stop making <laughs> films eventually, right? Right, but even Rob Zombie <laughs> uses CG. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, so, so um, I, think, I think that you'll find that it's going to take a filmmaker that really wants to do the work that'll take the time to do it. And, and that's, that's actually, that's actually getting harder and harder to find just because technology has gotten so cheap. Yeah. I, I would say from, from a, like a finished product standpoint, like I, I don't mind the use of CG, even in, even in horror films where, mm. uh, where it's used to affect in tandem with a certain amount of practical, you know, um, mm -hmm. where people are still in makeup, they are still in costumes. They're not just in gray suits with dots painted on their faces you right. know, to be a monster <laughs> in the film. Honestly, like in a horror film specifically to like really get that genuine performance, I would say that like, you know, Andy Serkis in, in white dots is not going to do it for you the way that like, uh, you know, a creature feature, you know, a puppeteered, you know, monster mask is going to. Totally. You know, but I, I mean, the the like kills that they they do for for C, with CG now, uh, where you know you do blade replacement, where you're just basically holding like the hilt of a knife or a sword or something, and they'll replace yeah. the blade so that you can get that shot of it plunging into somebody without having to cut away to like the fake run through your chest, <laughs> you know, prosthetic. Yeah. You know. Well, Renee, what do you think about? when you're acting, would you rather have prosthetics and stuff on if you're in like a horror film or would you rather be just pretending and act like that stuff's there? What would you rather have to really, I, I would way rather have everything on. I think, um, for me, whether it's in on stage or on camera, um, a lot of my character comes from that stuff, like the makeup, the, the hair stuff, whatever the costumes, especially, um, I've sometimes struggled to get into character until I find out what they're going to wear, you know, like, like who, like, how is this person? How does she care? And like, and sometimes one character, it was, I found the shoes and as soon as I put the shoes on, I was like, ah, got her. Like, <laughs> this is her, you know, and it's, it's silly, but it, it does help. Like, so for me, for my, my own personal acting style, I prefer to have as much that embodies that. And to be dealing with as much of what embodies that in like someone I'm acting against, it is much easier to have at least a, a picture in your mind. Cause sometimes the camera's on you. So the person you're acting with is nowhere near you. But if you know what they look like, you can imagine that and picture it. And it's just, I think there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with CGI, but I really um, have never really had the desire to do much with it. Like, like I'm sure it's really cool, but I'm not like, I really want to be in a CGI thing, you know, <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't do it for me personally as, as a bucket list kind of role. Renee, you don't want to make reactions and faces to a silver ball on a stick? <laughs> <laughs> no. 
I don't think anybody really does, right? Like, I mean, it's it's a test of your acting ability to a certain extent, and so there's kind of just that, like, oh, I was reacting to nothingness of complete nothingness. But I, I like part of what I like about acting is is that interaction because what they give you might not be what you're imagining, you know, and so it can change your performance. Right. Like, you know, so it's, um, I like having that person there and seeing them and hearing them and having the whole full real life experience just on camera. I actually have a funny story about that. During the filming of Sphere, Samuel Jackson, oh, I should say this, at the premiere of Sphere, Samuel L. Jackson, when he saw the movie, went, oh, shit, the sphere is silver? And everybody went, yeah. <laughs> and he went, the whole time I was acting like it was gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what, though? Like, the CG, you talk about CG being so much easy it's like more accessible it's it's cheaper to, to to now do it the technology has ramped up so much that i'm seeing films now i mean like big bigger budget films that can afford mm. the onset shenanigans where they are kind of going halfway back to a more practical uh way and then replacing it later well they'll do like half of an actor up or you mm. know like mm -hmm. there, there's a, a movie uh, I think I, it was supposed to premiere at TIFF. I think that it just got uh, removed. Clifford, where they actually built like, like a, the red dog. Yeah, the red dog. Okay. Uh, it, it was just making sure. They, but they actually they built like a giant stand-in for the dog. You know, uh, yes. uh, Ted, the movie Ted with Mark Mark Wahlberg. Like they acted with a teddy bear that just didn't have a head on it, and then that became their sort of like it was you know blended in with the cg bear that that was there so there there was more practical stuff on set for those actors to to react to than just yeah. like holding a green bean bag <laughs> right. and making believe you know what did they substitute for mark Wahlberg while they're filming oh it was actually uh steve agee was okay. uh he did all the the performing and then i thought they just put like a broom or something <laughs> no that i think that was uh in the suicide squad they they used steve agee for um the king shark and then replaced they did. the model. And he had like a giant dome thing over his head, like a cow yeah. that came up over so that they could get his eye lines and stuff uh, while he was performing. And then they, they had uh, Sylvester Stallone redub all of the lines. But Which is a shame because when you hear those dailies with him mm -hmm. doing the voice, that was funny. Yeah, it was but funny originally. I mean, if, Sylvester if Stallone Sylvester is good. Stallone to do yeah. your thing as a as a fucking killer shark. Right. <laughs> You're gonna be like, oh, sorry, Steve. And Steve's already in the movie. Um, you know, he's he's he plays another part in in the movie already. Right. The uh, he's an um, um, an impressive golfer in that movie. Right. <laughs> no spoilers. You you guys have have worn uh, a lot of hats. You know, acted. Uh, you've been on on stage. You've been on screens. Uh, recently, you guys have done um, voiceover work, right? You you wrote uh, an animated series. Uh, which of those offers you the most sort of uh, freedom? You know, within the medium. That's a tough one. Oh, oh, you're gonna have to edit out a huge pause here, <laughs> Renee. What do you think? Um, the most freedom. I think, I think writing is the most freedom because you're making it up. It's your story. Um, I think you get to play more doing voiceover 
because they usually want to do a lot of different takes. But um, but I wouldn't call it the freedom. It's very specific. I mean, I've had a lot of freedom being the producer because I usually get to say what's getting paid for. <laughs> and so, and so if, if somebody's like, we want to try this and it sounds cool and I can wring an extra thousand dollars out of something, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, let's give it a shot. That sounds great. Are you sure you can do it? Like, <laughs> it's, it's just a matter of, are, are you sure? Are you sure? Because if you're sure, I think we can do it. But uh, uh, no, I think Renee's probably more on track when it comes to actually having a, a feeling of freedom. Yeah. Or yeah, voiceover is a lot of fun. Maybe you sort of rephrase, not necessarily freedom, but like uh, sort of creative f- fulfillment. Yeah. So like in what form of performance art do you feel the most creative? Like oh, I one? do. I, I think I do best on stage. Yeah. 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 yeah, live yeah. Audience. I, yeah. Live audience is really hard to beat because they're there just interacting with you, ready to go. I mean, I know, I know this sounds cliche, but it, it's a good time. It's a really yeah. good time. And, uh, you know, it's easy to turn an hour and a half show into a two hour show if you've got a really good kick going, yep. you know, would you agree with that, Renee? Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I feel most free on, on stage creatively in terms of performing. Um, there is a certain amount of security that allows for a certain amount of freedom on, on film as well in that. If it's a total shit take, you can do another take. <laughs> Whereas you're without a net on stage. Um, That's what makes it exciting, though. Yeah. That's when the adrenaline kicks in. It is what makes in. it exciting. Yeah. And, it, and there's a lot of, in the moment, like, most onstage performances are never recreated. And so they're always a unique thing. Each, each one is its own unique thing, um, which, is, which is cool. Um, I do like that that I, I still stand by that there's much more freedom behind the scenes in the in terms of creative freedom, I believe, depending on who you're working with. Um, if you're the, the one who is writing and or directing, producing, um, versus having to deliver their vision. I think there's it depends on I guess it just depends on on what you are really more into in that moment. Like sometimes if you're telling the story and it's your story and you're writing it, um, there's, there's that freedom that you're the one telling that story in terms of writing it. But if you're working on a project that maybe it isn't your story, you didn't write it, but you believe in it and you're working with a really good team of people and you're all collaborating on this really cool project and you have the freedom to kind of interpret it your own way and play with it a little bit. There's, there's a lot of freedom there. I, I never give one answer, and so that's my convoluted, <laughs> non-specific cool. answer. Cool. We like answer. it. We like it. We have to address the uh, the fact that we now have Lindsey Brooks, our, uh, the, our our champion contributor to the Switch the Envelope show, and we found out that she is a friend of yours. Part of that, we found out that she does improv with you, Curtis, I believe. Renee, yeah. Um, I don't, I'd never asked, though, if, Renee, if you do improv, so this question, we're going to put this as part to both of you. You know, what drew you to improv? Because it's kind of a whole different beast from, it's kind of a mixture of like comedy and acting. And so what drew you to improv? What do you like about it? Do you still do it? Um, you know, tell us about it. Brittany, you want to hit that one first? I feel like you've got a pretty solid answer for this one. 
I don't do improv. <laughs> she, she, had a, she had a heavy head shake. I saw that on the screen. Um, like at the first start, I started to say that. You're like, nope, I don't do that. <laughs> Not my thing. Um, I, I have done improv and I have taken improv classes and we have done shows after them. And I believe in those moments that I have done it well. And, um, and so I, I, I do enjoy those moments when I do step out of my comfort zone to, to explore that medium of performing. Um, but Curtis can tell you, like, if I'm in an improv class or if I had to do it, right, like, I hate every moment of just, it. She just wants to, to climb through the wall. <laughs> I just hate it. I really like having a script, and I don't like, because it really depends on your team member, the person you are improving with, makes or breaks it so much. And I just honestly have trust issues, and I do not trust that they are not going to just turn the whole scene to shit. And that has happened to me <laughs> on stage where, and you're just, and, and that's not to, I mean, there's a lot of people who do improv who will fight me on this and be like, but you can save it if you do these things. And maybe sometimes you can, but I have watched Curtis falter when he has had a bad scene partner for something. And sometimes they're very talented people, but everyone has a bad scene, you know, like, and so. Even Colin Mockery has had a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Curtis, you've had bad scenes where you're like, oh, I know what I was doing there. I was, I was going for this and it didn't work. And, and it's just, and that's kind of part of the fun for a lot of people is that I tried this, it didn't work. I'm not that kind of easygoing, easy breezy person when it comes to performing where I can be like, ah, I just gave that a shot. I guess that didn't work. I'm not, I'm not okay with failing on stage live. So, um, <laughs> so I don't like that at all. And it's terrifying to me. And I like to have a script of some sort. I can improv within the script. And when I have had really good scene partners and like it just all kind of clicks, the subjects from the audience and the whatever, and we're all doing it. It is. It's great. It's fucking magic. It feels so good to like have people laughing and you're just coming up with this stuff and it feels very creative and it is very fulfilling in that moment. But I just feel like the, the cons outweigh the pros for me most of the time. So I tend to just enjoy watching people improv um, and let them handle that, and I wait until someone writes me a good script, and then go from there. But that's my take on it. I enjoy watching it a great deal. I think it's very fun to watch. And when I when I have done it and it's worked out well, it has been good. But it is something that does also terrify me and frustrate me a lot. You're you're more about the sort of uh, process, the really understanding the full scope of your character and where they're motivated and not to to really bring out and, the best. And just kind of. Yeah, and knowing that, that my partner and I, we are on the same page. We are we are headed in the same direction. We know where we're headed. Like I said, it doesn't have to be completely every little line scripted out. I will improv within a scene if that's allowed, and that's what we're doing. But um, I need like a general outline. <laughs> yeah, like a Christopher Guest film, where, where they, yeah. they give you sort of bullet yeah. points. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, okay, in this that scene, you got to do super this, fun. This, this, mention this, and go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Whereas I, uh, uh, you know, the esoteric actory answer, which is no fun, is that um, I trained in it as a way to be able to develop character, figure out um, environment, and then manage how to work a problem. So it was it was an exercise that that I developed a, as part of my training. 
Now, the fun answer is, I like to make shit up as much as anybody, and uh, when you get to do a comedy show at the same time and you kind of want to be funny, then improv's a good way to do it. Um, but Renee is right. If, if It's kind of why you've got to have a good team, because you, you, you don't necessarily improv well with a stranger. You kind of want to know where everybody's head is at, you want to be able to predict where things are going, and um, the audience can be as big a factor in that as anybody else who's on stage. Uh, because like for Improv Shmimprov, when I was doing it 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, God, it was a really long time ago, um, then, you know, our audience were, were college students who thought that dildo was the funniest thing ever said. <laughs> and so the expectations for, like, we never had to be very smart. We could, we could really pick the low-hanging fruit because a lot of them just hadn't heard those jokes yet. So there was a time when you could kind of cycle through your old material and, and still get a laugh from it. But the best nights, the best nights are when we really had to push and we really had to, to come up with that new creative stuff. There is one show that I remember in particular because it was a golden moment. There were three of us on stage. I can't even remember what the game was. But we were trapped in a mall in a zombie apocalypse. And only two of us could be on stage at a time. And there were three of us. And so you had to find a way to come on and off as someone was leaving or coming on. And, and it was me and a guy named Ryan Clark, and I think Drew Boudreaux was in this with us, um, who's also a good friend of Lindsay. And, um, <laughs> and it was just one of those magic performances where you didn't want it to end because everybody was laughing so hard and having such a good time. And it could never, ever, ever be replicated ever again. It just happened to be that Ryan, Drew, and I were simpatico. We knew exactly what was up. The situation was perfect. The audience was on the same vibe, and it just flowed. And those are transcendent moments. Those are the moments when you feel disembodied from everything, and you're just like, it's never, nothing is ever this good. Crack cocaine isn't this good. Heroin isn't this good. <laughs> this is the magic of why we do this in the first place. And then everything else, you know, um, it, it becomes a, uh, uh, <laughs> it becomes a phantogram song. It stops getting you high for a little bit until you find another one of those transcendent moments. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. You're always chasing that high. You're that always chasing bottle. that high. Yeah. It is 100% an addiction, and you're always chasing that high. <laughs> Improv, an addiction. <laughs> and now we go into our Dateline you know, music bed. And <laughs> it was a he was on now. stage. <laughs> November 7th, 1999. <laughs> the last time she felt the high. Yeah. Go, go into that. <laughs> it's like, like catching lightning in a bottle, right? That, the moment is there it is dependent on those exact people doing that exact thing at that exact moment right totally. it's sort of like uh you, you know when when there's a, a group of people that decide to make something when a lot of people have told them to not make something and they end up doing it anyway and it ends up being sort of this wonderfully beautiful little mixture of whatever their thing is together like a like an indie film mm. Mm. 
right? Yeah. Indie films can can be that lightning in a bottle sometimes. Right? Yes. And I think they can, Corey. we can we will take a, a quick break. And when we come back, I think we can talk about some of those lightning in a bottle moments in indie films that we've loved, that we've been inspired by, that we've uh, we've come to enjoy. And Corey, you know what else is like lightning in a bottle? Ooh. Combos. Combos. Yep. I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a little break and talk about what we think of as lighting in a bottle. Combos. Well, as the official, unofficial brand ambassadors for combos, it's our obligation and our duty. Combos. We'll be right back with a after a word from our unofficial official <laughs> sponsor, <laughs> Combos. Welcome to the Switch the Envelope Combos Conference Room. We are with our guests, Curtis Anderson and Renee Bordelon. But we want to ask them what they think about our unofficial, official combos snack. So what's your favorite combos? My favorite combos is the fact that they started off as dog treats. (laughs) And they were rated that they weren't healthy enough for dogs. (laughs) So they added more salt and new flavors and then branded them for human consumption. That is a fact. Cheddar cracker dog treats? Wait. Correct. Was pizza flavor part of the dog treat? Because no, that's new. Those are some cool that dog treats. That was for okay. human. That is so for which human. was the dog treat? Was it the pepperoni? No, it was the original peanut butter. Oh, peanut. Is that why they discontinue the peanut butter? Yep. Because <laughs> <laughs> technically it's dog food? <laughs> well, originally it wasn't even allowed to be dog food. So they moved it over. They found out people would eat it. But then they found other flavors that people liked better. So the original combo was actually supposed to be a dog treat. That's hilarious. So you're saying you like the peanut butter better than the pizza. I'm guessing that is what you are saying. (laughs) Uh, When it comes right down to it, I I do miss the cheddar ones. Okay. Do you remember those? I actually had those last week on our show. Yeah. Yes. Cheddar combos. My favorite are the pizzeria. Not the pepperoni pizza ones. The pizzeria combos. Those are, those okay. are my go-to. And Max. Max! Yeah, wh- what's Max. your favorite combo? Switch the Envelope. <laughs> Max, what else do you like? <laughs> the official dog of Switch the Envelope, Max, he actually prefers to have the jalapeno cheddar. Hmm. Yeah. Is that a flavor? I don't know. It was. They've recently discontinued it, and people online are super upset about it. He likes ranch bacon flavor. Is that a flavor? I don't think so. <laughs> there's a buffalo. Is that a buffalo I think there's ranch? like a, a buffalo blue cheese. He likes buffalo blue cheese. Maybe. The official dog of Switch the Envelope likes buffalo blue cheese. <laughs> That's hilarious. There are dog treats. And that can then and that concludes our commercial for Switch the Envelope's unofficial official sponsor combos. We hope you like us, combo. Combos. <laughs> And we're back. All right. Welcome back to the show. We just, uh, Corey, you're in the mood for some combos. I am now. Maybe not. (laughs) Probably (laughs) once it gets late enough. (laughs) I win like an hour. I am having my nightly combos. Yeah. (laughs) Big bag of three beers in and I need me a combo. Take me (laughs) back and have me a combo. Oh, how I think you just wrote our our (laughs) jingle jingle. (laughs) (laughs) Put, put some music underneath that. Oh, do, 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 do. Three beers in. I need me a combo. It's Jeff and Corey. And we're having a combo. <laughs> I've made more with less. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> we, we are back with television's Curtis Anderson and Renee Bordelon. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we're, we're having a good time. But we wanted to get into uh, our favorite indie indie projects, our favorite indie films that have inspired us along the way or some movies that, you know, nobody, nobody really saw, but we, you know, we, we were one of the few that, yeah. that ended up seeing it and it really needs to be seen for the public. These are the movies you walk up to people and say, Hey, have you ever seen that movie? And people look at you like, huh? That's mm. like, yeah, they've never even heard that title, let alone <laughs> yeah, I mean, what you're talking about. And we're not talking about the people that never watch movies. Those people uh don't include them we're talking about people where you you have that conversation all the time about movies but this is the movie that comes up and you say you have got to see this movie so who'd like to start i'll throw it out to our guests i'm gonna bring up a horror movie that i don't think enough people have seen and is shockingly good and i found it on accident on amazon and watched it because i'm a big horror movie fan and I'm really into horror discovery and, and low-budget projects and things like that. A found footage movie that does found footage really good. A movie that has two sequels that you can ignore. And that movie is Hell House LLC. Have you seen it? No, I have not. I love Hell horror. House LLC follows the, the journey of a documentary crew as they look into a terrible accident that happened at a immersive horror experience like Scary Farm or Halloween Horror Mm. Nights. It's a haunted house thing. And on the opening night of Hell House, 12 people died. And and the creators of uh, of the house were never found again. And one of them is found to be a survivor and Ooh. is interviewed by this documentary team. And they go and they, and that survivor has the security tapes of what happened that night. And it's a found footage movie, mm-hmm. but it's actually scary and, um, and is really worth a watch. Really worth a watch. They they are very good at taking very simple things and making them terrifying. It's yeah. So yeah, big big recommend on that. So sort of sounds like uh, they they took a modern interpretation of like H H Holmes uh, murder hotel and spun it into like a, a murderous uh, you know haunted house, right? Kind of, sorta, yeah, but. Um, but it's just so much worse than that because the <laughs> because everything you're seeing the setup of of this haunted house mm. and everything going into that opening night is all the stuff that's like this is real bad you guys should leave everybody should leave mm. and they actually give solid reasons why people need to stay so you do, oh. so you're so you don't feel like hey idiot get out of the fucking house um uh, so yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I feel like giving. I feel like talking about it too much is almost getting ready to spoil it. <laughs> well, but, it's actually um, it's interesting that you picked a horror movie because my when we were talking about this kind of beforehand, I was thinking that one of the greatest movies to be on this list if it wasn't so famous is Texas Chainsaw Texas Massacre, Chainsaw Massacre yeah. because that For was real. 
indie all the way. They did it with, I mean, they used a real freaking chainsaw (laughs) because they didn't have enough money to do stunts and stuff. And real guts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if that movie had not become such a cult classic that I think that you would have that movie on this list, but horror movies are able to do so much with so little. So I think that if we were to go through all the different type of horror movies, you could find more horror movies that would be on this list because you don't have to spend a lot of money to scare people. If you're doing it right. If you're doing it right. (laughs) If your writing is really good, you can do it with very little money and make it make the movie very scary. Theater of the mind. You you, you play into a lot of things. Yeah. I I mean, this list could almost entirely be indie horror films uh, (laughs) because there are plenty um, that would fall into that category. I mean, one of the more famous uh, found footage, the one that kind of kicked off the whole found footage thing, the Blair Witch Project, is an indie film that really blew up because of its viral campaign and you know like really set a bar for how to market and present an indie film with no money and turn it into a phenomenon you know yeah totally Uh, but again it's a movie that a lot of people saw and a lot of people were disappointed (laughs) (laughs) ultimately yeah the chris the chris rock joke is i saw it and i wondered where'd all the money go (laughs) yeah right I got I got a VHS copy of that um, before it was released into theaters, and um, we had the the version that I got was the film festival version before it got recut um, for for the thing. So it had a whole bunch more breathing space in it. It was like twenty minutes longer, and um, I didn't miss those twenty minutes when the theatrical version came out. It's like three extra minutes of the snot dripping out of her nose. Kind of, sort of, yeah. 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 All right, let's get another one. I'll I'll throw one out there. Um, Oh, oh, nope. Go ahead. Renee. No, no, Renee. It goes to you. Go into the the guest. Yep. You take precedence. All right, all right. So one of the first ones that I ever saw um, in terms of indie movies, I guess, Probably not one of the first, but it's one of the first that really stuck with me was Real Women Have Curves with America Ferrer. Mm. And uh, I just really had not seen a lot of movies, indie or otherwise, that showed um, a lot of people that were Hispanic to begin with, like a whole story about that, um, but also just people who weren't all Hollywood glam and, and perfect all the time. It was the first time that I'd really seen on the big screen um, people that just looked a lot like people that I would know that were in my family, that were, you know, in other people's families that I knew, you know, like that just, and I liked the the realness of it was so appealing to me. And, you know, you get told so often, oh, well, that's not, people want to see like this make-believe perfect image with just only these very specific kinds of beautiful people. And so, you know, we can't ever show them. And that was one of the first times that I saw not that. And it was so um, kind of just fascinating to me because it really was, it did feel just more real and it just really sucked you in. And I really liked it. And I remember thinking, all this other stuff that they're telling you is bullshit. Like, <laughs> of course you can have movies <laughs> yeah. that have people that look like people. Like, you know, like, like of, of course you can. Like, why would you not? And so um, 
that was very, um, had, had a very strong effect on me as a young adult woman at the time. Yeah, th- that's the beauty of independent cinema in general is they push beyond those norms, right? The, the expectations mm-hmm. a lot of times because they can, totally. they can't, they have more of that, that freedom because they don't have a giant studio that's like, nope, we need to push this star or we need to, you know, have a, a, a poster image that really fits in with, um, you know, the markets that we're selling it to or, or, or whatnot, you know? And yeah, um, Real Women Have Curves is, is a great film that, that <clears throat> feels genuine. I, there, there's a genuine quality uh, to, to that film. And yeah, I, I really do like, you know, the, what, what you're talking about, where it, it shows people that you wouldn't expect to see in a real sort of capacity on film presented in a genuine way. It reminds me of uh, another sort of indie film that I highly recommend, uh, Tangerine, mm. where you're seeing, you know, sort of like real, real people, not Hollywood polished people telling a story that is genuinely theirs. You know, and, and it's incredibly impactful because they have the ability to control their own narrative within that filmmaking um, level, right? Yeah. We have a, one of our casting director friends really loved that movie when it came out and talked about it a lot. And I think I remember him saying that it was shot mostly on an iPhone. Yeah. Am I correct in that? Like an yeah. iPhone 5. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. iPhones. And, and that's just, I'd love that about indie films. I really do. Um, so much of them, so much of them, no, so many of them um, are able to just really capture these real, very specific experiences of people and tell a story from that very specific perspective, which I think is what makes them so impactful and so important to be seen by by people because it is just like what you said that they're telling their story through their own lens. And I think that that's an important and powerful thing about it. We've done um, a few 48 hour film festivals with our friend Mark. And um, when you go to watch the like viewings of all of the, the films, um, there's such a huge diversity of the types of films. Cause there's been different, you know, genres, um, genres to begin with, but the, the filmmakers are all so different. And so you get to see like, and you can see like sometimes it's the first film they've ever made. Sometimes they've done like 20 of these and they're like super polished. And it's just so impressive to see what people can do just with a camera and an idea of something and 48 hours to put something together. And that is always just so much fun and so neat to see all these different little snippets of films that are like, they're what, like three minutes? Yeah. Five minutes? Yeah, seven, seven, seven. Yeah. Three minutes was the fun size. But, um, yeah, so they, they've got just all these different things, and it's just it's great. It's great to see that. Yeah. These different voices. Be, being sort of genuine is, is one of the staples. I mean, like, so, like, the, the two staples of, of indie films that we, two of the staples we've, we've covered now, horror <laughs> is, is a, a staple of indie film and genuine storytelling. Real, real, real sort of stories that feel genuine to uh, a specific group of people or to a specific generation. You know, that's the way why uh, films like Clerks explode off of, you know, the film film festival circuit the the way they do, because they tap into a group that is, I mean, not to say that, uh, you know, (laughs) 20 something white 
men working in New Jersey are underrepresented, but that <laughs> Gen X <clears throat> perspective was underrepresented, right? Right. Um, yeah. You know, the Latin X uh, female perspective was, is under, underrepresented. The trans perspective is underrepresented. And when those films really hit on something, uh, they're just magic. It's, it's magic. It's, we talked lightning in a bottle, right? Like you just you capture that one thing that really sets a, a tone that that you know people can really latch onto as long as they're seeing the films. So that I mean, part of the reason why we're talking about them is to try to bring awareness, right? Go see those films, right? Corey, in the '90s, there was a run of kids who just happened to have no parental supervision, and one movie personified that more than any other. And it scared the ever-loving shit out of me. And that was the movie Kids. <laughs> and, that's, a, that's a weird, and, a weird segue. <laughs> you know what, Jeff? I don't even need to be walking anymore because I'm and, just going to be riding that segue all over the place. <laughs> actors Jeff. were literally 14 years old in this movie. It received a NC-17 rating. Yeah. And was, was released. Yeah. It was one of the first movies to get wide release with an NC-17 rating. Did we say the name of the movie? Yes. Oh, I kids. said the movie Kids. Kids. Yeah. Kids. Um, yeah. Kids. Kids is uh, is a disturbing trip into uh, latchkey kid. I need to say that this movie dangerous. is one of the most dis- like disturbing movies I've ever seen. Yes, absolutely. But to be truly honest, I mean, um, and well, it the- displays people who are not really actors. Like if you watch right. the only actor in this movie that's of note is Rosario Dawson uh, and Chloe Sevigny. Sevigny. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but and then it, the guy Casper, he ended up going on to be in, in a whole bunch of movies like Bully. Uh, not Casper. It was not Casper. The, the other guy, Telly. Oh Tully. crap! Yeah. Telly, Telly. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Thanks. Which is odd Thanks because he has a Casper went on to become like skateboarder guy and friends with Soleil Moonfry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Have you guys seen Kids? You guys? Oh, seen I kids? have. Yeah. I have not. I've seen it's it okay. multiple times. I, I remember when it came out. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when it came out and it seemed very disturbing to me then. And I was like, I don't need to see this. And, and a few of my friends had seen it and told me about it. And I was like, mm, I'm good. And I passed on that. That movie still, there's certain scenes in that where I, it is still impacted my life. Yeah. The, the least <laughs> disturbing thing in that film is somebody getting uh, craniumed by a skateboard. That's the least disturbing thing. <laughs> that is a very disturbing scene. It is. But I'm saying there's the, like 20 dudes beating the shit out of somebody. The other things that happen in this movie. Are are far more impactful on a larger scale. <laughs> yeah, I, I I believe you, and I I kind of just from what people told me, I was like, I don't need to see this because I don't want to have those images in my head for the rest of my life. Because I think there are certain things that you just can't can't. They're just there now forever, and there's yeah. and like I said, I don't always remember everything like all the time, but I've got that filing cabinet. And so then sometimes something just reminds me and it'll just pop up out of nowhere and in full detail. And I don't want that to happen with anything I've heard from kids. I think we also have to look at what the writer's intention was for this movie. And from what everyone has said, the intention was Lord of the Flies with skateboards. He also wanted to bring awareness to AIDS. He also wanted to bring awareness to how people were, um, how kids were treating each other at the time. So there was a point to this movie, mm-hmm. even though it was so disturbing. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, it's an interesting as as distur- as purposefully disturbing as it is in many moments in the scene. It is kind of a a good 
uh, not not a public service, but like a a social commentary. That's the it is. It's I'm a social commentary about. on what'll happen if if you let unaccompanied minors just be at their at their will in New York yeah, City. No shit. Yeah, well, you know, Madonna walked out of that movie when it was over at the premiere and was interviewed, and she said, "I feel like this is probably the most honest movie about what teenagers are doing right now that is out, yeah. especially in New York at the time." You know, it was uh, it was a different time back then. You know, like Renee said, you get those images that are burned in your head. And as we've been talking about it, they've just been on a loop. And the one that is the least traumatizing but still sticks in my craw is when Telly spits from like the third the, 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 level yeah, third, yeah, third and level. just talks a loogie down through the stairs to land on the floor. And it's like, dude, that's disrespectful. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's another one of those movies, too, where like... <clears throat> At different ages that you view it, it becomes a completely different movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. for a dad, it's way different. It, it is. <laughs> yeah, for, for us now as parents, it's ter- It's a horror film for us as parents now. I mean, but when when we were kids, uh, when we were kids, you know, like it was still a disturbing sort of window into a darker world, right? Of you know, sort of what. You know, teenagers can get into when left to, to, to their own devices. Although right? you know that Jonah Hill had to have based his movie mid '90s on this film because it is oh, very yeah. similar. I mean, yeah. It's probably it, it comes from a similar place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's so, another great, great indie film that I was trying to add that I one. Recommend. I couldn't remember the name. And thank yeah. you, thank you, Jeff, for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but uh, but they're very similar. The two movies. It's not as mid '90s. Is not as disturbing. It doesn't have the same kind of overtone. Uh, the no. social commentary isn't there, but it's uh, the way the kids interact with each other. The way. There, this, there's this. a little bit more of a like a heartwarming uh, lost community vibe yeah. in uh, in that movie. Yeah, where where that you know that kid sort of finds a core group of friends that are genuinely cool to him, where he's yeah. felt sort of outcast because of his own personal life and and all that kind of stuff. So like it it has a little more of a heart to it than kids does. Kids is is pretty bleak in tone. Although yeah, in mid nineties, you don't uh, you don't learn how to pack a Philly blunt. <laughs> and I 100% <laughs> learned that from the movie Kids. So yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's Kids uh, for for some people was like the Dare program, where it just it it, it educated you on so many things that you could get into <laughs> <laughs> more than it deterred. <laughs> that is for sure. That is for sure. The big fail of the Dare program. <laughs> Anybody got anything that's a little more positive? Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> Positive. I was going to say that, like, I teetered on mid '90s, and my uh, one of my choices. Don't uh, go to bully. No, I'm not no. going to bully. Um, <laughs> and I, I ended up going with uh, eighth grade as a movie Ooh. instead of uh, mid '90s. Uh, they're, I mean, they've got like a similar protagonist. It's, it's you know, an awkward twelve, thirteen year old that's trying to sort of find where they fit in in their different social structures. Um, eighth grade is a Bo Burnham film. Uh, I think he definitely should make more films. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know if you, you saw his recent uh, comedy special on, on Netflix, but also yep. uh, that taps into a sort of like weird mirror on ourselves in a really genius way. I, I think as an artist, he has a voice that that should be continued to be uh, cultivated and and nurtured. They should give him uh, many more projects because I think he has an interesting. Uh, perspective through the medium uh but eighth grade yeah eighth grade is very awkward and it takes like you know watching it as 
as an adult takes you right back, even though it's set in, you know, sort of modern times, takes you right back to how terrible junior high is. For sure. Junior for sure. high is awful for everybody. Guaranteed. You know, even if you had a good junior high, uh, it it's probably sucked. the worst part of your whole school system. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I didn't have a bad junior high, and I still thought it sucked. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. Like, junior high is the worst, and that film perfectly encapsulates just how awkward that time in everybody's teen, especially, like, American teen. I'm not sure if it translates overseas um, to, you know, different societies uh, around the world, but, like, in America, that is absolutely encapsulates it. And her trying so hard to find the cool... <laughs> And failing miserably. Or, or as the kids say, to find the Gucci. 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 Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And also that kid from eighth, from eighth grade is in White Lotus. Is she? The guy. Oh, the, oh, the guy. Oh, the guy. The guy. Okay. He's the son in White Lotus. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. He's the one that wants, all he wants to do is pedal around the world. That, that's an, that's another, another good point uh, about a lot of these indie films. You talked about uh, America Ferrera earlier too and you know th there's one of the beautiful things about some of these indie films is it's the first time you get to see somebody who's going to go on to be great exactly right? somebody who's going to go on to do really cool interesting stuff their their career is about to just skyrocket because they were in this unique story on an indie level and that's that's pretty magical when, when you see that happen america ferrera she became a superstar huh <laughs> you put it right off of our dad joke bag that's hanging on the wall here. Um, Corey, why don't we do one more each? Just throw throw one out there, Corey. Rapid fire. Yeah, we'll do one more each. All right, I'm I'm tempted to go sci-fi because an independent sci-fi movie is uh, usually pretty pretty cool when they when they nail it. Um, I have two that sort of fit that category on my Didn't list. Did you just hear me? I said one more each. I know. So I, I won't. Don't be sneaking two in there. I won't go with Moon. Okay. <laughs> because I think it's it, more you people have one seen, more in there. Have you seen snuck Moon. one more in there. What I will go with is a 2016 movie called Infinity Chamber. And it's a, a sci-fi movie where a guy has been imprisoned by automated justice system. And he's in a room and the he's got like a HAL type red eye in the sky that's watching him in this room and uh, questioning him about uh, his crime, what he did wrong and all, all that kind of stuff. And then he, when he dreams, it's actually a simulation of the crime that committed, that happened replaying so that they, they're replaying his memory of that time. Sounds like hell to try to catch him in, you know, where, where he slipped up and it, it's, you know, him sort of battling mentally with the, automated justice system to try to trick them into releasing him from this prison and it's incredibly intimate really well thought out and anxiety uh inducing at the same time and it's a wonderful film i recommend it highly not exactly rapid fire but we'll take it i will have to throw out there one more film because um i have a bone to pick with the fact that people have not seen this film and bone tomahawk not Bone Tomahawk. We've actually gone over Ooh. that. That is good, though. The movie The Secretary. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I liked The Secretary. Um, I like both people who are in it. There's ba two basic stars. There is Jillian... Not Jillian Anderson. 
Um, a, Gyllenhaal, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Maggie Gyllenhaal. Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah. She is the secretary. Yes, and um, character. the guy and who, Ultron, James Spader. James Spader. Yeah. Okay, so um, my problem with this film is that not enough people saw it, and because of that, all the Fifty Shades of Grey films were based on this movie, <laughs> and nobody realized <laughs> completely ripped off that yeah. they it's ripped 100%. off the plot of this movie. Yes, they even ripped off the name. James Spader's name in this movie is Mister Grey. It's well documented that Fifty Shades of Grey is the worst fan fiction ever written. But they all think that it's based on Twilight. Well, it is not. I mean, it's based on Secretary. A little bit. It, it, it spawned from Twilight fan fiction, but then she added all the Secretary you stuff. You know that lady was watching the Secretary. Absolutely. Every time she was going back and forth between Secretary and Twilight oh, and writing down her yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's, it's absolute garbage. <laughs> Sorry to any fans out there of the Fifty Shades of Grey, but uh, you're, fan, you're a fan of garbage. Exactly. Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Spader do an excellent job in this movie. Their acting is really yeah. good. It's much better than uh, a Fifty Shades of Grey I movie. It. Yeah, it's good. I think it's a it's a good movie. I enjoyed it. It's a good yeah. movie. Yeah. But yeah, the Secretary is a good a good movie. I I enjoy I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for as awkward feeling as it made me, but it it was a it was a good film. I enjoyed it. All right, what do we got? Renee Curtis, who's next? Anything more? Any uh, last thoughts? Last Renee, thoughts do you have a last any... one? Um, my last one is going to be Office Space because I feel like Great. it encapsulated so much of my work life, both <laughs> as a server and in an office. All that flair. And so, yeah, all the flair. Can I have that red stapler? <laughs> I'm going to need to work over the weekend. <laughs> There's so many quotes from that movie that you can't even... We can so sit many. here and quote that whole movie. and Yeah, it's it's... I, I think it's quotable uh, nature is what has made it a, a a very like successful cult classic. You know, I I think a lot of people only found this through renting it, <laughs> right? Home video. Yeah, yeah. You know, it it was a uh, it would not. I don't think a lot of people saw this in the in the theaters for sure. It was found through word of mouth, and that's really what every indie film it really dreams of, right? Is that word of mouth will just light it ablaze. And I don't think this movie has really continued. I think among our generation, it's a huge movie. You can yeah. still quote it with people who are our generation. Oh, yeah. It's, it's an age Younger check. generation has no idea. If I walk behind him and I go, hey, would you have those TPS reports? Yeah. Nobody has any idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but wait for the old man. <laughs> exactly. Do I, do I report to you? What is this? I don't know. What? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They have the office. Yeah. We have. Yeah, exactly. Office space. <laughs> exactly. Like if I tell them to put their put their office in the basement, they have no idea what I'm referring to. But they need to eventually watch that movie so they can get up to the same lingo. Yeah, we don't want them to, to jump yeah. to conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> My final bit of flair here uh, is going to be <laughs> uh, Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. A pulp action movie starring Peter Weller. This is pre-RoboCop. Uh, and uh, and it, it, it is not good. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing you want to say. But, it's but what it is, is wonderful. It is. It is. And if you can find it, it is hard to find. But if you can find it, it is worth a watch. And make sure you see it in widescreen. So it is available for rent now. For the longest time, this movie was nowhere to be found. 
This is Jeff Goldblum's in this movie. Yeah. Oh yeah, Jeff Goldblum, Ellen Barkin, John Lithgow, Jeff Goldblum, Christopher uh, Lloyd is in this movie. Uh, and and uh, uh, Clancy Brown. Hilariously, Lewis Smith is in this movie. Okay, Lewis Smith. The only other movie he was in where he was the star in Heavenly Kid. Uh huh. Okay, I've never seen him in anything else. <laughs> he was in Bucker Bonza. Yeah, and he's blonde. He's blonde in in Buckaroo Bonsai. Perfect Tommy is blonde. Mm-hmm. The evil ghost from Ghost, Vincent Schiavelli, is in this movie. Uh, great character actor Jonathan Banks. Fucking Jamie Lee Curtis is in this movie. John Boutte. Oh, I, yeah, I, I, I forgot to, that Jamie Lee Curtis was in this yeah. movie. I, yeah. I need to go rent this uh, immediately. I've heard so much about this film from many people. Wait, the guy from uh, uh, what's it called that? Uh, the TV show where they sell lots of meth. <laughs> uh, Jonathan Banks. Breaking Bad. Yeah, Jonathan Breaking Banks. Bad. From Breaking Jonathan Bad. Jonathan Banks Breaking is Bad. in this movie. Yeah. It is yep. one of those where you don't know his name, but you know his face. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he played no, Mike. He yeah. played Mike in Breaking Bad. Yeah. It's it's yeah. a really 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 good cast. It's a really good cast. No, but seriously, there's. I mean, good last mention, Curtis. Good last last mention. Just saying. Just so, saying. Uh, it is a hell of a thing, and the credit sequence where they're all. Walking to the Buckaroo Banzai theme is is legendary. You know, it's funny. If you go back into the Jeff Goldblum movies, like there's a lot he did before he got famous. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. like shitty. He just shows up in in stuff. <laughs> Earth Girls are easy. Yeah, like that's a terrible movie, but he's in it. Yeah, and then the fly hits, and then right. <laughs> that's and then and then mm-hmm. it's Jurassic Park. Yeah, Jeff Goldblum has a. Um, a series on the Disney Channel that is worth watching. Oh, is, is that the National exactly Geographic uh, show that he did? It's like the world according to Jeff Goldblum mm-hmm. or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I've seen it. It's it's interesting. That's a good one. But he's an interesting guy. Yeah, I watched the one where he was going to uh, the sneaker convention. He was going around mm-hmm. talking to mm-hmm. people, like, checking out all the sneakers and stuff. Yeah, his personality can only be described as eclectic. He's a weird For real. Dude. Yeah, he has a lot of apartments. I hear. <laughs> uh, 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 apartments.com. <laughs> he gets a good deal on that. <laughs> He's, what if he was like a slumlord because of apartments.com? Like, <laughs> like they they gave him a bunch of really low low rent <laughs> apartments that he's. He's flipped and just jacked up the price and instead, them all. instead of paying him, yeah. they were just like <laughs> they gave him real estate. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he does. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, just kind of... Um, I do want to say, too, that I do think that one of the good things about indie films, especially in more recent years, is that, it, as we were talking about earlier, we kind of touched on this with Tangerine, is that it, it's giving so many different voices mm-hmm. like a chance to shine, and they're very often nominated for awards yeah. for being so good. And it's giving more people, you know, getting that foot in the door of the industry, but also telling really important stories. Um, and like Get Out was so good. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the Farewell, I don't know if you mm-hmm. saw The Farewell yeah. with Aquafina, yeah. that one, that one I thought was really, really good too. And they got snubbed and, during the Oscar um, season. Yeah, for yeah. real. Oh, even Chloe's out so, uh, Nomadland that actually ended up winning, oh, you know, is a movie like that, that shines a light on a subculture of people that none of most of us probably didn't even know were a thriving group of people, you know? 
Yeah. Or, uh, same thing with the Florida Project. Yeah, the Florida Project, Willem Dafoe. Yeah. That, that's a really hard but good movie to watch. You know, mm-hmm. that's... Uh, I mean, we could keep going like this all night, guys. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even get to talk about smoke signals or... Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For, for, for the listeners, there's right another now. 17 movies here that haven't been touched on this list. <laughs> and yeah. honestly, and we could go 100 more because... Just, and these are just movies that we've thought of tonight i mean yeah. there's movies that we could if we really did a deep dive we could find a hundred more of these movies that have, we just can't put out a three-hour episode exactly i mean we usually <laughs> well, do every we, night we could <laughs> we're not going to yes <laughs> you cannot call yourself a film fan without really acknowledging the wonder that is indie filmmaking i i think yeah. o- honestly that is one of the most important subsets of film to move film forward to move conversations forward you know is is the indie film world um i i think because of the low budgets you see a lot of is a lot better creative problem solving with uh you know creative storytelling we well, do better yeah like like it forces mm-hmm. you to try to squeeze more uh, more juice from the berry you, you know uh in that kind of filmmaking um, experience. And that's why a lot of great filmmakers start from the, that indie level. They make a short, they make an indie film that with you know, a shoestring budget. And you can see right away that, oh, this person knows what they're, what they're doing. And that's why studios end up paying them lots and lots of money. Chloe Zhao is a perfect example of somebody who, you know, they saw Whale Rider and, uh, oh, I'm blanking on her other film. Um, Anyway, and then Nomadland gets an Oscar, and now she's doing Marvel movies. Yep, the point I'm, I'm making. You know, like yep. she, you could see in those I think early stages that, though, like, but I think it's sad that now that this fantastic filmmaker is now doing Marvel movies. But, yeah, but you know, we'll have to see the way Eternals comes out, and like maybe she'll turn a new page for Marvel. That no, is, never do. There's like three thousand <laughs> people working on those scripts, and all those movies turn out the same because of it. It's true, and I mean, <laughs> yeah. although we did get Black Panther. It's true. We did get a stylistic shift in the first Ant-Man movie. I, I mean, the original uh, Captain America feels very different from any other Marvel movie as well. For real. Yeah. You know, I mean, the Russo brothers filmmaker. being in charge of a whole bunch of things started to started to make those things. But I remember the first time I saw uh, the Winter Soldier, I was like, well, this doesn't feel like a Marvel movie. Mm. It didn't yeah. feel like a Marvel movie until it became what a Marvel movie felt like. Yeah, we, we could go on, on and on. And Switches, if you want to continue the conversation about which indie films you love that we didn't bring up tonight, hit us up on Instagram, at Switch the Envelope, or on our Twitter, at Switch Envelope, and continue the conversation. No the on Twitter, because no, yeah. Twitter are assholes. Twitter, Twitter doesn't like words. <laughs> they limit words. They're, they're wordless. It's kind of their thing, though, so I guess it's appropriate. Right? But... Like, what up? Yeah. Like, you're all about words. No, and combos. <laughs> uh, we'd like to offer you the opportunity to plug whatever you'd like to plug at this point. You got any social media that you'd like people to follow or a project that's coming up? Maybe something that's animated that's really cool that you want to talk about? Uh, there is an animated project that's coming up that's really cool that I can't talk about yet. Damn, but I'm really to, I, excited I about it. Make it slip. Yeah, I thought we'd be able to sneak it in. Um, for me, it is um, at Renee's Revolution. And that is Renee with one E at the end, not two. Awesome. But you could also just search Renee Bordelon. There's not a lot of it. <laughs> it's, 
So if you want to check out what I'm doing, uh, you can find me on Instagram at Curtis Anderson, last name spelled S-E-N. And I also run an acting class. It's uh, Curtis Anderson's Acting Lab. And uh, uh, it's great. It's a chance to be able to work on real audition material. But what we focus on is acting fundamentals and making sure that you've got your skills in place and making sure you feel safe to experiment so that when you actually go out into the world, you put out the work that you want to do. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and message me on the old Instagrams or email me at curtisanderson at gmail.com. Awesome. Sweet. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, we had a blast. Yeah, Curtis and Renee, thank you so much for hanging out with us. It was a great conversation. We always love talking movies, especially indie movies. It's kind of one of, one of the things we like to watch. Indie movies like uh, Pearl Harbor and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and um, uh, Rules of Attraction and uh, <laughs> Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen's Winning London. Mary is that Kate, in there? Exactly. Is that is that <laughs> on that list? And Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Uh, <laughs> If you like the show listen to us uh, wherever you listen to podcasts L- like and subscribe wherever you can leave us a comment uh, or a review wherever appropriate uh yeah you can you can listen to us on apple spotify all the regulars uh, right now there is a new app out there called good pods that you can get on it's kind of like social media and a podcasting platform all wrapped into one and you can see the shows that we listen to the shows that your other uh, podcast hosts listen to it's a it's a fun time and on good pods we are now an elite podcast hitting number one multiple times in categories such as entertainment and history beating out that's right the history channel but, yeah. i just think nice. it's hilarious that in history we friggin' beat the history channel it's our it's our cinnamon shit yeah you know <laughs> you know what fuck you history channel we beat your ass on good pods <laughs> uh, so, you know, go fo- follow us on there. You can l- listen and interact with us on on all in one spot, uh, and, and leave us a review. Uh, otherwise, you can go to switchtheenvelope.com for all of your switch the envelope needs. And other than that, go see those movies, and we'll see you later, switches. See you later, switches. Each episode of Switch the Envelope is written and produced by Corey and Jeff. Switch the Envelope is a riff laugh production. Switch the Envelope is mixed and mastered at Studio 85 by Jeff. Combos.